great to see all of you here today. Welcome to New Life Christian Church. If this is your first time with us, welcome. Glad you could be here. We're in a series right now called Rescued. We're going through the book of Exodus. So if you've got your Bibles, please open to Exodus chapter 11. That's where we're gonna be today, Exodus 11. There should be some Bibles around you in the seat pockets around you if you don't have a Bible or you can open up our app. You know, David was reading from, from his phone. Our app has um, um, all the scriptures I'm gonna use today and place you can take notes. And so, you know, if you see somebody with their phone open, it doesn't necessarily mean they're checking the scores from yesterday. It could mean that. But let's hope not. <laughs> anyway, hey, while you're finding Exodus 11, I want to say something to you, um, just how appreciative I am of all the many notes that you guys wrote last month and put in that box out there. I've appreciated every one of them. They've meant something very, very, very meaningful to me. And others have sent me cards and dropped off goodies and stuff at the office. And I just can't even begin to tell you how much that means to me. And, and also the other pastors I've talked to, um, how much, on behalf of all of our pastoral team here at New Life, just how much we appreciate your guys' generosity and your kindness and words and encouragement. Um, I can tell you, we all feel this way. We get to serve the best church in America, and we really believe that. And I, I do, I believe that. And, and, and I sometimes feel guilty bragging on you as much as I do to some of my friends around the country who are in less than harmonious situations. And so, uh, on, on behalf of our pastoral staff and me, I... Thank you for all those kind words. Really, really, really meant a whole lot. And you're a wonderful church family. Hey, as we get into our, our study today, um, I want to start with uh, sharing a phrase with you that I think everyone in this room has probably used it before or some variation of it. Um, the phrase is this, some people just never learn. Have you ever heard, have you ever said that? We, we've all, I think we've all said something like that. We usually say it with some frustration, don't we? After we've shown somebody time and time again what to do and they, they don't do the correct way or, or somebody just continuously makes a poor decision about something, uh, sometimes their only thing to say is like, some people just never learn. You know, I think this phrase could easily apply to Pharaoh here in the book of Exodus. Last week, we studied about these first nine plagues uh, that God sent on the Egyptians. And numerous times through those nine plagues, Pharaoh could have done what? He could have changed course. He could have repented. He could have stopped thumbing his nose at God. He, he, could, have, he could have honored the Lord. He could have done all of these things, but he chose to harden his heart every time. And we look at that and we're like, some people just never learn. And because of that, the Egyptians had to suffer through these first nine plagues. Do you remember what they were? It was the Nile River turning to blood. Then what came next? Frogs, and then gnats, and then flies, and then there was disease on the livestock, and then there was disease on the people, these boils, and then this horrible hailstorm, followed by the locusts coming through and eating things up. And then the final of the first nine plagues was what? Three days of complete darkness. Now I can tell you, as bad as those first nine plagues were, and we know they were bad, bad because Pharaoh's officials said what to him at the end of it? These things have ruined our country. So they were bad. So as bad as they were, I can tell you that they are not as bad as the 10th and final plague. The 10th one that's about, we're gonna learn about today, it, I mean, it, it overshadows the first nine. It, it, makes, it makes the first nine kind of seem like child's play compared to this 10th and final plague. And let's read about it. Exodus 11, let's look at verse one. Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, 
he will let you go from here. And when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the people that, that men and women alike are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. How do you like that? Hey, you're gonna head out, but all your friends and neighbors, they're gonna give you everything they got on your way out. The Lord made the Egyptians, verse three, favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. We're gonna come back to that thought in just a minute, but essentially, here we have the situation where God sending these plagues and his purposes and his mission for that is almost complete. One more plague, and he will have successfully brought down his judgment on the Egyptians for all of these years of mistreatment against the Israelites. He will also have judged all the false gods of Egypt, and at the same time, let the entire world know, all the Egyptians and all the Egyptians, or the Israelites, they would know that there is one true God in the land, and he is Jehovah, and there is no other God besides him. And after this tenth and final plague, the Israelites will finally get to leave Egypt. And like I just said in a moment ago, they're going to leave with silver. They're going to leave with gold. We also know they left with clothing. They left with anything that they wanted. All they had to do was ask their neighbors for it, and, and they would willingly give it. This is how ready the Egyptians were to see the Israelites leave their country. By the time this, these plagues were over, they were like, please, just go. Take everything we've got left. Just leave us, please. That, that's how much this has transitioned over these 10 plagues. And when that happens, as the Israelites are leaving with all the plunder of Egypt, I want you to see that when that happens, something that God said to Abraham all the way back in the Genesis chapter 15 will be fulfilled. God, if you go back to Genesis chapter 15, we studied through Genesis last year, God calls Abraham and he says, out of you, I'm gonna raise a mighty nation. That would be the Israelites. And God says this to him, and I wanna read it to you because I wanna connect what's happening in Genesis and Exodus together. Genesis 15, 13 says, the Lord said this to him, to Abraham, hundreds of years before the Exodus. He said, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they'll be enslaved and mistreated there. What's he talking about? Exodus is what we've been reading. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. This is a connection from something God said to what is actually happening now in, in Genesis. Hundreds of years before, before Moses and the plagues in Exodus, hundreds of years before that, before there was even a, an Israelite people, God already knew how this was going to play out. And that's what I want you to see. In his sovereignty, in his providence, he already knew what was gonna happen. And, and I think this is a really good time to point out once again, I try to every time I, we come across this in our, in our scripture reading, this is once again a good time to point out that God is in control of all the comings and goings of everything that's happening on this earth. I'm confident there were times, if you go backwards into Genesis with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph, and, and all the others that were in Genesis, and all as it moved into Exodus, and there was this explosion of growth among the Israelites, I am confident that there were times among all these people that they were like, where are you, God? Life is hard. Lord, are you still with us? Lord, are you still gonna fulfill your promises? I, I'm confident there were times 
over these hundreds of years, they, they wondered as everything was spinning around them, God, are you, are you still there? But what does this verse show us from Genesis and how it connects to Exodus? What does it teach us? It teaches us that there's not one second of anything that will ever happen that has ever escaped God's notice or is ever outside of his will. Do you see that? These verses connect that for us. And this right here, my friends, is one of the most important truths that you can receive and accept today as you walk through your Christian life. This important understanding that nothing escapes God's notice. He sees all, he's still in control, and this world is not spinning out of control. He's got it. It's important for us to know because there are sometimes, maybe even you're experiencing one of those seasons right now where you feel like you're like the Israelites and you're in bondage and you're enslaved right now. And you gotta remember, God's in control. You can experience seasons in life that feel out of control, difficult, extremely painful, and you are tempted to wonder, God, do you still care about me? Do you still see me? Are we still in this together? We can have those seasons. Ever tempted to look out at the world today and feel like our entire nation is spinning out of control? You might be feeling that way or something like that headed to the ballot box on Tuesday. God, don't you see what's happening? I want you to see a moment in the text that reminds us that God sees it all, he knows it all, he is in all, he knows how everything's gonna play out, he has a plan, he has a will, and you can trust him in everything. Since I brought up voting on Tuesday, why don't I say something else about it? <laughs> Telling you that God's in control, does that mean then that uh, we shouldn't be concerned about what's happening in our nation? I would say not at all, that's not what I'm saying at all. I think we should be very concerned. I think we should be involved. I think Christians should be involved. I think we should get out and vote. Um, I think it's our right as Americans and I think we should do it. It's the right thing to do. But I say that to say this. If Tuesday doesn't go the way you want it to go, then let our text remind you today that there's still not one second of anything that's ever happened that's ever escaped God's notice. Nothing happens without his sovereign hand allowing it to happen, which means this, as a Christian, that he's still in control on Wednesday, too. Last week we learned after the ninth plague, which was the three days of darkness, that Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron to let them know that after these three days of darkness, he was still completely unwilling to let all the Israelites go and, and unwilling to let them do everything they wanted to do. In fact, he's so angry about it, he says to Moses, if I ever see you again, I'm gonna kill you. That's how mad I am at you. But before Moses leaves, he has one more message to deliver from God. It's almost like saying, fine, I get it. You don't want to see me again, you'll kill me. But before I go, you need to know this. And this is what we read in verse four, Exodus 11, verse four. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh who sits on the throne to the firstborn son of the female slave who is at her handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. 
But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any person or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All of these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, go, you and all your people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. I don't know, friends, why this announcement didn't stop Pharaoh flat in his tracks, do you? I don't know. Everything Moses has said at this point has come true. He said the water's gonna be blood, it turned to blood. There's gonna be frogs, there's gonna be frogs. There's, there's gonna be flies, there's gonna be flies. There's gonna be a hailstorm. Gonna be... Everything he has said has come true. Why in the world would Pharaoh not stop in his tracks and go, I don't wanna lose my son. But that's just how hard his heart was. He wasn't going to relent. Now, up to this point, um, we are not aware that the first nine plagues killed anybody. I, my assumption is they did, you know, but it doesn't say. But this 10th and final plague that is coming on Egypt, it would bring death on a scale that these Egyptians had never experienced before. But even with that, Pharaoh was unmoved. That's how hard, hard his heart was. And that's why we just say, some people never learn. And that is Pharaoh. Now, obviously, God had told Moses ahead of time that all about this 10th plague. So Moses knew going in, when he'd been summoned, that, um, that this 10th plague was, was forthcoming. And that's why he was prepared to deliver that message, even when Pharaoh was threatening him, I will kill you if I ever see you again. And then it says, Moses leaves the presence of Pharaoh. And the Bible says, did you catch his detail in verse eight? Hot with anger. Why was Moses so mad? The Bible doesn't tell us why Moses was so mad. There's no details, but I think we can read the text and we can draw some conclusions. And I think as he's walking out of the palace, his anger sounded like this. Now this is just me, I think this is how I would sound. So obviously that's how Moses would sound. So anyway, I'd, but, I, but this is just me speculating. What does hot with anger sound like as he's leaving? I think his, his hot with anger sounded like this. Oh, that stubborn old fool. That Pharaoh, so blind, can't see the truth right in front of him. And I, and I imagine Moses is walking and grumbling and his teeth are gritting, gr gritting, you know, Arr. I think Moses said something like, he'd rather sacrifice his own son than just humble himself before the almighty God. God already told me this loser would not budge. Why am I here wasting my breath? Maybe I just thought one last thing. Maybe this would do it. Oh, I can't believe he's, put me in this position. I don't know what it sounded like, but I think that's what hot with anger would sound coming out of me in that situation. Everything that God told Moses during these first nine plagues came true in frightening reality. And Moses knows that this 10th one, if God were to level it, it would be something the world had never seen. Not the Egyptians for sure. Jump down to verse 21 of chapter 12. Here's what happens next. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animal for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and on the bottom sides of the door, or both sides of the door frame. 
None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of your door frames and he will pass over that doorway and he will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Jump down a few verses to verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead in it. And just like that, with one swoop of the Lord, it was done. Never before had the contrast between the Egyptians and the Israelites been more obvious than it was on that night. What did the Bible say about that night? Where the Israelites were, where were they? They were all huddled together in the land of Goshen. It's like this little area inside Egypt and they, that's where they were. In the land of Goshen, everything was quiet. That night, remember that little detail that you wouldn't even hear a dog barking? That's quiet. I'm, I'm guessing it was like this eerie calm. It's like they're all huddled in their homes like, well, we did what we were supposed to do. Now let's see what happens. The eerie calm. But, but in the, in, among the Egyptians, it was not calm, was it? A complete contrast. Loud wailing, the Bible says, throughout the country all throughout the night and into the morning as the realization hits them that somebody in every home had died. I don't know this for sure, but I'm wondering if the wind was blowing across the land of Egypt and it carried the cries of thousands of people across the land of Goshen where it was completely quiet and they could hear it. I don't know. Makes sense to me. I... I've tried to wonder, I try to take things in the Bible and I try to break them down to scale so we can understand them. And, and as I was working on this sermon, the thought hit me, what, what would that be like if the death angel, if you, have, you know, sometimes referred to as the death angel, came over Bella Vista? What would that carnage be like? Best I can tell, according to myself and Google, there's about 13,000 housing units in Bella Vista. So that would mean on our scale, that if every one of those houses had a dead person in it, that we could have woken up this morning, if this was the night, to 13,000 of our residents dying overnight. That's what that kind of looks like on our scale. The experts who study this stuff out um, estimate that in ancient Egypt during the Exodus, there was about two to four million people living in there. It's hard to pinpoint exactly how many homes that represents, but they do all this study and they try to figure it out they estimate that on that night that the Lord swooped down and took the firstborn, there was somewhere between 100 and 200,000 people who died on that one singular night. So yeah, loud wailing in Egypt. But in the land of Goshen where the Israelites were, not even a dog was barking. Quiet contrast. But it was only after this 10th plague that Pharaoh finally relented control. Again, never relented his heart but he relented his control. On this event, on this night, this 10th plague, 
This is something that God never wanted the Israelites to ever, ever, under any circumstance, ever forget forever again. I mean, the events that we just read, God's like, you're never gonna forget it. What happened this night when I sent my death angel and I passed over you, you're never gonna forget it. Because after this night, the Israelites were delivered. This night right here marks a brand new beginning for the Israelites because this whole event, the slavery, the plagues, this 10th plague, Passover, this, these, all these events bound them together as a nation. This night where they covered the door frames of their houses with the blood of the lamb, there is no doubt that there is no other God than Jehovah after this night. They were finally free to leave Egypt and God's like, don't you ever forget it. In fact, the instructions will be for this year and every year going forward for generations, you are going to remember this night in a very specific way. Now, now I'm gonna pull some pieces together for you. Before this 10th plague hit, Moses had instructed the Israelites exactly what they were to do to be ready for it in order for them to survive this night because there was no guarantee that the Israelites would survive it either. There's something that they had to be taught and instructed. There's something they had to do so they didn't suffer the same fate. There were these extremely in, in, uh, specific instructions that we read about, about what they were to eat, how they were to prepare their food, how they were to eat it, um, how they were even to wear their clothes that night. These instructions for the night of the 10th plague were to be followed to a T, and they were to be followed every year going forward in remembrance of this night of the 10th plague. That remembrance is called the Passover, the Passover. You know, we have a lot of remembrances to commemorate a lot of things. We do right here in our own country. Like every 4th of July, what do we do? We remember our independence. And how do we remember it? Well, most of us eat way too many hot dogs and we blow up stuff. That's how we remember, right? The fourth Thursday of every November, we commemorate something. We gather together and we eat a lot of turkey and we are what? We are thankful to God for the year that we just had. Every December 25th, what do we do? We open up presents under the tree because what is that supposed to celebrate? That the night of Jesus' birth. And this is how we commemorate it. The Passover is kind of like that. To this day, it is regarded as one of the most important festivals in Judaism. And every year, Jewish families celebrate Passover by sitting together on the, the Seder table and they recount the story of the Exodus and how Moses led the Jewish people out of Egypt and the Passover, the understanding of it, the instructions for it, they begin here in Exodus chapter 12 with Moses instructing the Israelites what they need to do to be ready. So I'd like for us to take a few minutes um, for the rest of our time today. We're gonna spend more time with this next week. But I'd like for us to just unpack, start to unpack some of these details of the Passover because there's things about the Passover that are extremely important to our Christian walk today. And I would like to begin showing you some of these things. Look at chapter 12, verse three. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share with the, their nearest neighbor. 
having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. You admit with me, these are very specific instructions. I mean, there's a reason for why they are so specific. The one detail that I'd like for us to focus on today is the detail found in verse five. Look at that real quick. The sacrifice must be an animal. We know the sheep or the goats. And it must be without defect. Do you see that in verse five? Very specific instruction, without defect. Why is this important? Why is that, why can't it just be any old lamb or goat? Why does it have to be one without defect? And not only that, they had to select this animal um, on the 10th day, slaughtered on the 14th day, which means there's four days there where they separate it and they watch it and they observe it and we're gonna make sure that this animal really is without defect. It's a very important detail. Why is that? It's important because this blood of this innocent lamb would be spread over the door frames of their houses. And it was the blood from this perfect animal, this animal without defect, that would be a sign to the Lord's destroyer that night that the people in this house are part of God's family. Leave them alone. They were literally covered by the blood of the lamb. Now friends, does any of this language sound familiar? It should. Should sound familiar because when you go into the New Testament, the Passover lamb, it is a picture of Jesus Christ himself. This is an important detail as Christians today. The Passover lamb from the Exodus is a picture of Jesus Christ. Jesus who who knew no sin. Jesus who was, in essence, without defect, became the sacrifice for our sins. Literally, the blood he shed on the cross covers over our sins. He literally saves us from sin's worst consequence, which is death, and beyond that, death leading to separation from God forever. Multiple places in the New Testament affirm this kind of language. If you were to look at something that, uh, that Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, he wrote in 1 Peter 1, 18 and following, he said this, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. This is language that connects us back to the exodus and deliverance, the deliverance of the Israelites. Paul said this about it in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. He was speaking to the church. He was correcting them. He said, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. In other words, put off the old you, follow in the steps after Jesus, a new creation. Christ, the Passover lamb, ours, has shed his blood for you. Live this new life. 
There's really no question at all that the Passover lamb of the Exodus was a picture of Jesus in the New Testament. And when you look at the life of Jesus and you study out the gospels, there is really nobody else at all other than Jesus who can meet all the requirements to be the lamb. What did God say about Jesus? This is my son whom I love and well pleased. Good enough for me. You look at Jesus' life leading all the way up to his death. You know, the days leading up to his going to the cross, the days before Passover. There's, there's a reason why Jesus died at Passover time. We'll talk about that next week more specifically. But they were trying to trip him up and trick him to say something wrong. And, and all the things that Jesus could have lashed out in anger and he never sinned. He did no sin. There was no sin ever found in him. He is the perfect Lamb of God. So we need to see that today. There's a connection between the Passover and Jesus. Back to Exodus. What did Moses tell the people next? Look at verse 7 of chapter 12. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Let, let me be very clear about something that is so important as a Christian today to understand. It was not the life of the lamb that saved anybody. It was the death of the lamb that saved them. You get the blood from the lamb after it dies. That lamb had to die. What did Moses say to the people in verse 13? Jump down a couple verses. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you. When I see that this lamb has been sacrificed and it has died and the, and the blood is taken and spread over the house, I will see it and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. It was the blood that was given through the death of the lamb. It was the blood that was applied and this is a tremendous picture of what Jesus has done for us and what we are to do in response to that great sacrifice. So just like the Passover lamb shed its blood, Jesus, our Passover lamb, without defect, shed his blood on the cross. In multiple places in the Bible, both Old Testament and the New Testament, speaks about this reality, that without the shedding of innocent blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. This is the way that God set it up. I didn't set this up. This was God's doing. This was God's purposes. He had a reason for doing it this way. Something innocent had to die for people's sins to be forgiven. Now, under the Old Covenant, you know, this, let's think of it this way, before Jesus came, People would sacrifice an innocent animal, shed its blood for the forgiveness of their sins. That's how God set it up. That's how people were redeemed. But under the new covenant, and maybe simply say, after Jesus came and died and rose again, Jesus became this once and for all sacrifice, the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So I was listening not that long ago to one of these progressive preachers, uh, a false teacher, I don't know why I put myself through it, but I was doing it. And I listened to him, this is a preacher right here in Arkansas, by the way. I, I listened to him tell his congregation this. He told them, you don't have to believe that Jesus literally died on the cross and shed his blood there and then raised back to life in order to be a Christian. 
You know, that's a bold-faced lie. He'll be held accountable for that false teaching. It made me mad. I had to go to the bathroom and wash the heresy residue out of my ears. It was this thick on there, thick. I had to get it out. Here's the truth. It was Jesus' death on the cross, the shedding of his blood that paid the price for our redemption. Jesus was our substitute. What I mean by that is he did something for us that we deserved. We should have been on that cross. We deserved it. Jesus is like, no, I will do that for you. So he stepped in, was our substitute, took our place. If you don't believe that and accept that by faith, you can't be a Christian. It's that simple. Peter said this in 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He himself, talking about Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. By what he did, you can be healed. So there is this very powerful connection between the Passover lamb and the, and, 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 and the blood that was shed during the Exodus for the deliverance of the Israelites and Jesus Christ, who was our Passover lamb, who shed his blood on the cross for our deliverance from sins. There's a parallel story happening together and they are connected. So on the night of the 10th plague, the Israelites had to do something. They had to believe what? They had to believe Moses' words. Hey, the destroyer's coming and you have to do something in order to survive this night. So they had to what? They had to believe what Moses told them and then they had to do what? They had to sacrifice the lamb, follow these instructions and they had to put the blood on the door frames of their houses. That was faith that resulted in action. They had to apply that blood. And I think about us today. When you believe with all your heart that Jesus shed his blood for on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, actions follow that belief. When you become saved, you become converted. The Holy Spirit indwells your life and you become a brand new person. You're not, you don't believe that so you can sit on your rear the rest of your life. No, you, and where there's no changes at all. No, not at all. You believe that, you receive that, you accept it, you believe it. And that transforms you into a life that's lived for Jesus. Paul says it like this, Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, he has completely identified with what Jesus did, the shedding of his blood. He believes it with all of his heart. And I have united with Christ. I've been crucified with him. I, like Jesus, I put to death all the old junk in my life. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live, in other words, the way I am now, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So this belief that Jesus died on the cross, shed his blood and rose again, believing that, accepting that, this new creation becomes over you and you live differently. There's more that we're gonna unpack about this 10th plague um, next time. I don't know if you caught the title of my sermon today. It's called The Passover, part one. Really creative, isn't it? There's gonna be another part. But for our purposes today, there's two truths 
that I really don't want you to miss. And the first one we've already discussed. The first truth is this. The Passover lamb is a picture of Jesus Christ. Don't miss that. The second truth is this. Unless you are protected by the blood of Christ, when death comes, you will be completely unprepared. I've heard it said like this before, that death is no respecter of persons. What they mean by that is, it's not selective. Everyone in this room one day will die. It's a fact. That night of the 10th plague, death visited every family, every house in Egypt. It didn't matter if you were Pharaoh living in your palace or you were a prisoner in the dungeon. Death, death was met by all of them. But not one of the Israelites, God's chosen people, not a one of them died that night. Why? Because they were literally protected by the blood of the lamb. They were prepared for that moment. And friends, it's like that for us today. And that is why you must believe with all your heart that Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood there for the forgiveness of your sins. Friends, that is the only way that you'll be prepared for when death comes knocking at your door. So I would be remiss as your pastor if I did not ask you, are you prepared properly for when that day comes? What is it that you believe? Lord, I just thank you for your holy word as always. I thank you, God, for the clear teaching and I pray, God, that you open our eyes. That, God, you'd help us see the truths that are undeniable in your word. Lord, I thank you so much. On behalf of our church, Lord, we thank you that you went to that cross for us. You were our substitute. You, you did what we deserved. And in doing so, saved us. Lord, I, we can't thank you enough for being the perfect lamb of God who was sacrificed on our behalf, who shed his blood for us. And Lord, with every drop that dripped off of that cross that day that you hung there, you were saving us. And we are recipients of such grace. And that Lord, the fact that you would open heaven's doors to people like us is still an amazing reality that's hard to come to terms with at times. But Lord, you did it for us. And the words of, the, of, of John ring true that for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So God, we thank you there's nothing we could do that could express it as well as it needs to be. But Lord, we just choose to live for you, honor you, acknowledge that you are the one true God and there is no other. And in all walks of our life, honor you in everything. So Lord, we just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.